Well, we're in 2023, we're in the country of Canada, the home of the free, the land of the brave, or something like that. And yet there's a lot of crazy things taking place in our world. You may have heard that this week in the province of Alberta, in the Dominion of Canada, a pastor was arrested by the police for protesting an all ages drag queen show in Canada in 2023. You may be aware that there's an increasing movement among federal politicians to remove the charitable status of any organization that preaches an anti-abortion message. You may be aware that the criminal code now threatens up to five years of jail for anyone who would try to convince another person that God's creational plans for human sexuality are in fact biblical and right. These are the things that are taking place in the modern world. And as you hear the rhetoric build and our opponents preach their message and try to censor ours, you'll also be aware that if you don't agree, if you push back, you're liable to be labeled a racist or a fill in the blank phobe, whatever it might be, or be charged with allegations of being an extremist or a threat to democracy. This is the world within which we live. And it can be mildly disconcerting, but the thing, the point of the, the, the illustrations are to remind you that while these things are taking place in our country, they're actually nothing new. It's nothing new. This kind of stuff's been going on since the beginning of time. The language may vary, the circumstances may vary, the personalities involved may, may vary, but the word of God and the claims of God and the claims of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ have been offensive since Genesis chapter three onward. The reality is people just don't like it when God lays claim upon their lives. Political leaders don't like it. Some churches don't like it. Individuals don't like it. When God declares that he is King of Kings and Lord of all Lords, that offends people. That offends people because we have this natural bent towards autonomy autonoma, self-law. We wanna govern ourselves. We do not want to be governed by God. So human beings are bent toward sin. And the question is, those of us that have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ need to figure out our response. So what's our response gonna be? Well, we can bury our head in the sand and pretend that these issues don't exist. Just try to ignore them. We could do that. Or we could switch churches. We could attend a church that actually serves the causes of the enemy. There are several of them to pick from across the country that seem to be part of the problem, not the solution. Or we could get all pious and super spiritual and claim that, well, we just preach the gospel, meaning we just preach the conversion story. We completely ignore the world around us. We're just passing through, we're just waiting for glory. We don't really care about babies being butchered or children being twerked in front of by drag queens. We can just pretend it doesn't exist and just preach the gospel. But that's not a biblical response either. Jesus has something to say, not only about heaven and hell, but also about life on earth. Spoke to matters of justice in the here and now. Brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is, is that disciples of Christ 
will be persecuted and always have been. And that'll continue to the end of time. But our response fundamentally should always be to put God's laws first. Well, you need to understand what God's laws are, of course, means spending some time in the word, but we just put, we put God's laws first. In Acts chapter five, we have a showdown that's illustrated for us between ministers of the gospel. Here, it would be the early apostles, Peter and some of the other early apostles of Christ, and those that held the political, cultural, religious reins of power in the broader culture that were offended by Jesus, so offended by Jesus that they had him crucified publicly. Now there's a showdown a couple months after Jesus' resurrection between these apostles of Christ and those that held these political reins of power. And I wanna study this text with you because there's so much in there that's directly applicable to our current circumstances and milieu. And what we're gonna witness is the resolve of the faithful disciples of Christ contrasted with the wicked motives of God's opponents who in their self-righteousness think they're God's allies, but in fact are God's opponents or God's enemies. And we will witness how God delivers the powerless from the powerful. Those that did not hold the political, religious, cultural reins of power, how God redeems them by his power from those that had the reins of power. So join me in Acts chapter five. We're gonna read all of verses 17 through 42. And then we'll kind of break it down and digest it a little bit more. As we're reading it, what would be helpful for you to get a head start is to look for three things. So pay attention to the tactics and the motives of the enemies of Christ. Because you're gonna see in their tactics and their motives, the tactics and motives of the modern enemies of Christ. Secondly, notice how God works in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the suffering and the tribulation of his people. And the way he works then is the way he works now. And third, notice what their response, the faithful disciples of Christ, notice what their response is through their suffering to the challenges that lay before them. And from that, you're gonna be challenged to live differently, to live in the way that they lived. So I'm gonna read all of it for you and then we'll go back and comment on it. So Acts chapter five, starting with verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, motive, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So they had authority. They had authority over who wound up in jail and who wound up free to live their lives. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, 
They called together the council of the Senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. They brought all their allies, all the infrastructure of their limited government in order to deal with these delinquents, these Christians, these worshipers of Christ. Verse 22 says, but when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we have found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Kind of reminds us of what happened at the tomb, doesn't it? Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come, would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain and the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. In other words, they were concerned about optics, public perception. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, you intend to throw us under the bus because we crucified Jesus Christ? Really? I mean, how dare you? But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care that you about what, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Now here's his logic. For if this plan or this understanding is of undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them because that's what jerks do and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, not once a week or once a year, but every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, meaning the Messiah, is Jesus. Pretty cool, eh? This is a classic display of the motives and tactics 
those that hate God. Now, to be clear, they were religious. They, they thought they loved God, but they were not true converts. They were not truly of Israel. They were not the real deal. They were fakes. They were religious charlatans. There's houses of worship across every country in our world that are filled with charlatans, with people who claim some connection to God, but they're not converted. There's no spiritual life in them. And here we have such men, their motives and their tactics are violence and anger and rage in order to keep their own power. They were very much display, disgusted by and disinterested in any notion that Jesus Christ was Lord and Messiah and therefore had authority over them. Now, what I would like to do is to go back into the text and just for the sake of clarity, draw out of the text their motives and their tactics. My reason for doing this is because I see in their motives and their tactics, the same motives and the same tactics in those that are opposed to the things of Christ today. And there's a benefit to getting into the mind and hearts of your enemies and to understanding why they do what they do and why they say what they say and why they think the way they think. So there's four insights here into the powerful. And the first one is that they're motivated by jealousy. It's very clear in the text, we're told, we don't have to guess their motives. In fact, we have no business presuming to know someone's motives unless the Bible tells us what their motives are. And here we're told that they're motivated by jealousy. Christ had made an authoritative claim on them and they didn't like it. And they were upset about the attention that Christ's followers were getting. This is a classic mark of non-submissive people that want to be governed by themselves. They don't like that. And they certainly don't like observing other people who've submitted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be the most submissive Christian on the planet to Jesus Christ, but they'll call you arrogant. This is the classic mark of the godless. And so they come together and they try to plan and take down the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever way they can. And we see in the text, they often kind of reconfigure their response in light of their understanding where the people at. So at one point they're ready to arrest them. At another point, they're throwing them in jail. At another point, they're being nice to them because they weren't sure if they had the points in their favor from public opinion. Another point, they're beating them up in the back room. But ultimately, they're motivated by jealousy. Secondly, they're terrified of having their immoral deeds exposed. I love how the apostles just go ahead and pour salt on the wound. They tell them, you're the ones that crucified Christ. They just say it. They don't try to beat around the proverbial bush. These men had crucified Christ, but somehow they resented being reminded of it. Now think about this. If you made a decision and you believe that decision was a righteous and moral decision, why would you care if someone later brought it up? So if on the screen we were to display every decision, everything you did 
this past week and assuming you've lived for Christ and you've made the right decisions, why would you care if people saw what you did or how you thought or where you went? Well, if you actually believe that killing Jesus Christ was the righteous thing to do in keeping with the word of God, why would you be so upset about them reminding you of it? But deep down that tips us off to the fact that their, their consciences were bothering them. They had killed Christ thinking that they would get rid of their opponents. But the plan backfired and more and more people were becoming little Christs, Christians, followers of Christ and heralding his message. You'll notice that their resentment is expressed in this objection. They state, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's like, well... Yeah, you crucified him. What are you talking about? So here we have them wanting to hide, wanting to have their previous immoral deeds overlooked. They didn't want to be exposed. They wanted to be able to hide it and bury it. Let's just move on. Let's just move on, was their mindset. Third, we're told that they are filled with rage. Verse 33 draws that out. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. They wanted to actually take the lives of the early Christians. Now, this is in contrast to the proper Christian response. So one of the things we see the Bible lays out for us in the pastoral epistles as it pertains to church leadership is one of the requirements of being a church leader is to be sober-minded, to be unconfused, to be clear-minded. This is a quality and virtue and characteristic that every Christian should strive for. When we're angry then, the Bible says in your anger, sin not. So it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be upset, but there's a difference between righteous anger and self-serving anger. How do we know the difference? Well, one serves the purposes of God and one serves the purposes of self. I read an article this week, someone forwarded to me. I won't even declare its content, but it was depicting a, probably one of the most heinous, disgusting sins I've ever read about. To the point I didn't even share it with my wife. I didn't disclose with anybody. It was just, it, it made me so angry to think that people could do such a thing to children. Oh, we should be angry at such things. We shouldn't be passive in the face of child abuse or passive when it comes to abortion or passive to pastors being persecuted? Christians aren't supposed to be emotionally bland and emotionally dead. There's times of joy and delight, and there's times of holy, righteous anger. But this is neither sober-minded, nor is it righteous anger. This is rage. This is we've been caught and we don't like it. The finger's being pointed at us and we are upset. We're in places of power and we're being embarrassed. So let's just erase the historical record. Let's not talk about what we did just recently. No. So this is also one of the marks of godless people, a failure to take responsibility for what they did. And fourth, they are willing to resort to violence, to physical coercion, to forcing you 
to do what they want to do. Now, the wonderful thing about this event is that God intervenes not once, but twice. And one time he intervenes in what we could, we could call a supernatural way. And another time he intervenes in a more natural way. And God does both. Sometimes God delivers us through the wise counsel of someone that puts up their hand and says, you know, I've studied history. This is probably not a good idea. And other times God intervenes through angelic messengers. So in the first case, he delivers them by supernatural means. An angelic jailbreak takes place. And the angels come in and pluck out God's choice servants. And everyone goes the next morning and can't figure out what happened. It was a supernatural event. It was an event that went above and beyond the natural order of things. This stuff, this is not natural. This is not how things normally happen. So we have God supernaturally invading and rescuing his choice servants. And in the second case, he delivers them through the wise counsel of an aged man whose motives aren't really clear, but who understands history. And through his age and experience, points out various past events and circumstances that had taken place and reminds them of the capabilities of God. And basically throws a little warning down and says, look, if, if, they're, if they're in the wrong, they're gonna be exposed, but if they're in the right, the last thing you guys wanna do is find yourself opposing God. So in the first case, God uses an angel. In the second case, he uses a wise human being to deliver his people. And brothers and sisters, God can do the exact same thing today. Sometimes he, he rescues us because the court says, okay, we're just gonna withdraw the charges. Or the employer says, I'm gonna bring you back to work. Or the laws change. Or someone else gets into power, or whatever it might be, just normal, natural, human events. And other times God does something miraculous through his ministering servants or through a work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing, both are governed by and ultimately attributable to whom? God. And so whether God rescues us and redeems us by natural means or supernatural means, we declare soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. So this helps us to understand how the opponents of Christ think in the past and in the present, both then and now. And then by way of contrast, we see the resolve of the powerless. So here's where it gets really personal. We now have some great instruction here that pertains to how you and I should respond to tribulations, to suffering, to assaults on our faith, to those that would seek to diminish the kingship of Jesus Christ. And here's the first one. They answer to God, not man, is their declaration. So this is a, a fundamental core truth, which we need to take and install right in the center of our hearts. This needs to be like a top tier conviction, a top tier conviction for every Christian especially in an anti-Christian culture. If this is not a conviction that you have taken and decided you're gonna put into practice, you're gonna get pushed all over the place. So you have to have this notion in your mind, in your heart. Ultimately, I answer to God. 
not man. Look at verses 28 and 29. The opponents of Christ state, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. What's the problem there? The problem is the presumption of an authority they did not possess. That's the problem. They assumed that they had the authority to determine whether Christ's name could be uttered or not uttered, whether people could follow him or not follow him, whether his message could be preached or not preached. Now, if they weren't informed Christians, they may have heard these charges, these warnings and said, well, you know, God does call us to submit to authority. I guess we could just do it in our homes in private. I guess we could just mail out letters anonymously and no one would know who we were. I mean, doesn't the Bible teach us to submit ourselves to authority? It does. Maybe I, I would be, it would be helpful for me to remind you and remind myself that we do actually believe in authority in the human realm. We are not anarchists. And, and, and we're not libertarians. A libertarian just wants all authority placed on them fundamentally, at least a radical libertarian does. And then there is the state that would claim to have authority over everyone. Well, the Bible's pretty clear on this. The Bible is pro-authority. God ultimately has authority over all things. And then in the 13th chapter of Romans, we're told that we are called to submit ourselves to governing authorities who are appointed by God as his deacons, as his servants. And as you read through that passage, you discover they have a job description and their job description is to penalize evildoers and to reward the righteous. So there's a moral dimension to that. So then you scratch your head and you think, well, who determines what righteousness is and what evil is in culture? Do you just make it up? Is it determined by public vote? Yeah, we all agree that abortion's okay. Does that then make it right? We all agree that um, killing Christians is right. Does that, does that suddenly make it right? Like who determines on behalf of a civil governor the basis for putting their job description into practice? Who determines what's right and what's wrong? God's eternal laws. If it's not God's eternal laws, then it's man's. And if it's man's, it's in opposition to God's laws. But throughout history, we've had various forms of government that have taken the reins of power and they have decided that they know what's right and wrong and then somehow convinced the population the population has to submit to them, sometimes even quoting from Holy Scripture to justify their violation of God's laws. Well, a properly, in a properly ordered society, the civil government, whether it's a king, an emperor, a house of parliament, or a religious sub-government like the Sadducees and the Pharisees were, in a properly ordered society, the ruler or rulers or governing body has to understand something of God's eternal laws in order to penalize that which is called evil and reward that which is called righteous. 
Maybe I, I could give the illustration of a, a marriage to make it even more clear. So my wife, who is not in the room, but was here at nine o'clock, and I said the same thing, just so you know, <laughs> is required to submit to me. And my requirement is to lovingly lead her as Christ leads the church. In that respect, we're very different. We have different roles. We're equal in our humanity, but we're different in our function. And you know what? Both of those job descriptions are difficult in a fallen world because she's gonna question me. Why would I wanna submit to this guy? And I'm gonna struggle with my own selfishness. How am I supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church, right? And sometimes there's a little bit of a, a jockeying that goes on there and other times, when you go back to God's word and you're functioning in accordance with God's word, it's, it's a great marriage. But suppose I said to my wife, look, the Bible says you need to submit to your husband. So I am ordering you not to go to church because I hate God. Is she required to submit to me? If I require her to do something that God's word commands her to do? What if I say, I want you to go kill yourself. I no longer want you as my wife. Go take your life because you need to submit to me. You'd say, this guy's a tyrant husband. And you would advise my wife, you, you no longer need to submit to your husband. In other words, my wife's submission to me is limited and constrained by God's word. My authority over her is limited and constrained by God's word. It's not absolute. Let me give you another illustration. I'm your pastor. The Bible says to submit to your spiritual leaders. So what if I say to you, um, who's driving the new car out front? I want you to leave the keys on the stage at the end of the service and sign the ownership over to me because I'm your pastor and I told you to, right? You'd say, this guy's a cult leader. He's a tyrant. And you'd be right because while I have authority, my authority is still limited and constrained. But then when it comes to civil government, some people have this wacky idea that they have absolute authority over, for instance, the ministry and worship of the Christian church. And they do not. So here we have them charging them to do something that they have no authority to charge them not to do. In fact, you can see that they're quite upset with the success. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And you're like, aha, now I know why you're so opposed to our message. Because you know you were wrong. You know you crucified an innocent man. And you're afraid of being exposed for it. So you're going to resort to every tactic, every political maneuvering opportunity you can concoct to try to take us down. But listen to what happens next. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered. Let me just pause there and ask you this question. Why do you think Peter is named and not all the other apostles? Why Peter? Why is he highlighted in this text? Well, not more than a couple months earlier, what was Peter doing? I don't, I don't know Jesus. Never met the guy. You got the wrong dude. He was denying him, not once, not twice, but three times. And later by the seashore, he is restored and becomes useful to God again. 
I think that's why his name is mentioned here. Because the man that is now about to make this incredibly bold, incredibly risky statement is contrasted with the other Peter, the old Peter who was denying Christ just a few months earlier. And what an incredible reminder that God restores people and that God can use us. You might've been denying him yesterday, but today's a new day. You might've not stood up last year, but this is a new year. You may previously even have been one of the enemies of Christ. In fact, we all once were. But now as his children, there's a fresh opportunity to represent him well. So rather than wallowing in our past shame and guilt, we confess our sins and we remind ourselves today is a new day. So here's what Peter and the apostles answered. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. It sounds easy to say, but consider the risk they were exposing themselves too. Now, some would say, you know, they take a reductionistic approach. You know, really the takeaway from this message is that we should always submit unless it's very explicitly a case where they're forbidding us to preach the gospel message. And as soon as people say that, I hear within that response a view of the gospel that is reductionistic. Because usually what people mean by that is, they reduce the gospel down to the point of conversion. So the gospel for them is exclusively about you're a sinner, Christ is a savior. You need to repent and put your faith in Jesus and he will forgive you of your sins. And then you need to live for him. It's, it's, the, it's the crux of the gospel. It's the core of the gospel. But actually the gospel starts off in Genesis chapter one. And God said, he exists. And then he makes declarative claims and he judges sin. And time and time again, he declares himself to be Lord and ruler and provider and protector and creator and on and on and on. The macro gospel of scripture is that there is a king and you are not him. And you're accountable to him. Really the gospel is about authority. It's about who's your daddy? Who are you going to submit to? Who is going to rule you? And of course, out of that, that's the, that's the precursor. That's the foundation for you're a sinner. Jesus died for sins. You need to repent, put your faith in him. The whole of the word of God is the gospel. So anytime, anytime a civil governor, a religious leader, a husband, a parent demands, you, demands of you to do something God forbids, or forbids what God commands, you have no responsibility to say, okay. But rather you can declare, I will obey God rather than man. And then secondly, and this is where we're gonna land the plane. We have this beautiful response from God's choice servants. They see the big picture and therefore they can rejoice in suffering. Which is, which is pretty awesome. They see the big picture and they're able to rejoice in suffering. One would think that having done some jail time, having had the boots laid to them, that they would be leaving the jail and keep in mind, they're probably leaving the jail with black eyes and split lips and maybe you know, dragging their right foot. 
because they had been beat up. This wasn't a fun time from a human perspective. You think they'd be leaving in fear, you know, online looking for real estate in the boreal forests, running to their homes, hiding out in the basement, or maybe plotting revenge. Let's shine up the shotguns. Let's attack them. Let's get our due reward. But instead they're seen leaving the jail rejoicing. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is a theme woven into the gospel message. When Jesus dragged his cross through the streets of Jerusalem to the point that he could carry it no further and then passed it off to Simon of Cyrene to carry the rest of the way, the Bible then later says that we are called to carry our crosses, which means that we are called to follow in the footsteps, the suffering footsteps of our savior. Part of representing Christ is suffering for him. It's being willing to say that he is our all to the point of death. It's being willing to, to stick our necks out and declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. And yet somehow brothers and sisters, I must say that, and I'm guilty of this too, that I think in Western Christianity, we have become masterful at protecting and insulating ourselves from true suffering. And it totally rattles our cage when someone tweets something against us. Like, oh, I gotta go see a psychiatrist now. Just destroyed my self-esteem. I can't sleep at night because someone said a mean word. But we've become masterful at protecting ourselves from persecution, from, from suffering. We don't realize that this is part of our call, that there's actually a redemptive value to suffering for Christ publicly. Notice where they went to worship, by the way, once they got out rejoicing and saying, you know, this is our privilege, Lord, it's our privilege to suffer even in a, a small, tiny way like you suffered. Look what it says they did. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. We've brought this out of the text before. The temple, public, the house, private. Where did they preach and teach? Publicly and privately, privately and publicly. Here's one of the mistakes the church makes when it's under persecution and trial. It runs into houses and it says, well, we're just going to meet in houses because after all, all the early Christians met in houses. House churches are the way to reform the world. Really? Actually, they met in the temple too. They continued to posture themselves in public. They continued to gather God's people in public. There's a place for private worship. Sometimes it's necessary, but there's also a place for having an address, for meeting in a public place. It actually scares the devil, it scares tyrants when God's people gather in large numbers and they worship. What Canada needs is not more small churches, they need bigger churches. They will intimidate the government. They will intimidate the devil. They will say Christianity's growing, we take this seriously. This is our modern temple space. We pack out the parking lot and we meet in a building like this. And this is a declaration that God is changing our lives. Folks, it's not because we want attention. You gotta be a real nut job if you want your name in the media these days, because it's probably not gonna be good. 
We don't want that. We're not looking for public applause. We're not looking for more media articles written about us. We'd rather live peaceful and quiet lives, would we not? I'd rather just go stand in a field and look at cows. <laughs> pet my cat. Drink a cup of coffee. You don't need the drama. But there is a sense in which when we go out into the public every day and we preach in the temple and from house to house, it makes a statement. That is part of our suffering for Christ because it's not always going to go well. It's not always going to go well. But we declare Christ in public because he is Lord of the public. It's not just Lord of the church. He's the Lord of Canada. He's the Lord of the globe. And the more people acknowledge that, by the way, the more people are blessed by it. Because he is the righteous judge. He is the one that tells the local magistrate what good, good is and evil is. He is the one that governs the nations benevolently. We're not suggesting that we're going to fix the world through politics or something like that, as some might accuse us of. But we're simply taking the principle of Christ being King of kings and Lord of lords, and we're putting it into practice in, in, all, of, in all of life. Well, what is required of a man or woman of God to be able to rejoice in suffering? Like when your eye hurts because someone just punched it, when your lip is bleeding because someone just decked you. What is required? Well, it's required that we see the big picture. It's required that we get our theology right. That we actually understand that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. That we actually believe that Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That we actually believe that. That we actually believe the gospel is the solution to the world's problems. And we will declare it because that is the hope of the world. That is the hope of the nations. And it requires that we see and understand how this all ends. Guess who wins? Christ wins. And so because Christ wins, those that follow Christ win. It's as simple as that. So there is, there is hope and there is peace and there is a challenge in believing in the sovereignty of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apparently what you believe about God matters. And if you believe he's sovereign, and if you believe he's king of kings and Lord of lords, and if you believe he's the hope of the world, and if you understand that part of your calling is to suffer for him, then you will call it public blasphemy at work. Then you will step in to an all ages drag show and you'll say, this has to stop. Then you will speak out against the slaughter of 100,000 babies in Canada every year. You'll speak out against these things, not because you're an attention seeker, not because you have nothing better to do, but because it's the right thing to do. And you might spend some time in jail for it, and you might get beat up for it, and some of you might be put to death for it. But at the end of the day, that's what being a follower of Jesus Christ is all about. So be encouraged by these words. Rejoice in your suffering. See the Lord at work around you. Be useful and usable to the Lord and allow him to use you as he sees fit.